This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Washington Today for Monday, March 6th, 2023. I'm Gary Sterkoff. Thanks a lot for joining us. It's a full work week ahead for Congress and the White House. The Senate gaveled in today to continue work on more of President Biden's judicial nominations. On Thursday, the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee will have a hearing on how to protect the public and the environment after the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. The House gavels in tomorrow. Virginia Democratic Congresswoman-elect Jennifer McClellan will be sworn in. She was recently elected to replace the late Donald McEachin. The heads of the U.S. intelligence agencies will testify on threats facing the U.S. at two hearings this week. And Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell will also testify at two hearings this week on the monetary policy report. Meanwhile, President Biden spoke today at the International Association of Firefighters Legislative Conference. On Thursday, he will unveil his 2024 budget proposal with an event in Philadelphia. We'll hear from the president on taxes, plus House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on the ongoing debt ceiling talks and a closer look of it at, it all, at all of it with Bloomberg government congressional reporter Emily Wilkins coming up. As we said, President Biden will be in Philadelphia on Thursday to unveil his latest budget proposal. He'll visit a union hall there where, according to a White House statement made to the Philadelphia Inquirer, he plans to deliver a speech that outlines his proposals to, quote, invest in America, continue to lower costs for families, protect and strengthen Social Security and Medicare, reduce the deficit and more. But today, the president was here in D.C. speaking to the International Association of Firefighters Legislative Conference. He's the first sitting president in more than two decades to talk to the group. He talked about several ideas he has pushed to improve firefighter benefits and urged Congress to do more. One of the specific items on his mind was taxes. Much of what we're doing is about your right to be treated fairly with dignity and with respect. Part of that is making the tax system as fair. By the way, we can make all these improvements and still cut the deficit. If we start making people pay fair share. I made a commitment on my watch. No one making under 400,000 bucks will pay an additional penny in taxes. And guess what? I did all we did and all the stuff you guys wanted me doing and some more. And we still cut the deficit in the last two years by $1.7 trillion. You know why? For 550 corporations who made over $40 billion and didn't pay a cent in federal taxes. Now, I'm a capitalist. You want to go make a lot of money, go do it, but at least pay something. So we put an incredible burden on them. 
We made them pay 15 percent tax. That's less than you, you got. You guys pay a hell of a lot more than that. And guess what? We were able to afford everything and still cut the deficit. That's why I'm proposing, you know, there used to be in America, when I started this job, there were, I think, 600, don't hold me the exact number, I think 680 million billionaires in America. I'm not million, 680 billionaires in America. Now it's about 1,000. You know what their average tax rate is? Three, T-H-R-E-E -E percent. Poor people. <laughs> That's why I'm proposing a billionaire tax because no billionaire should be paying a lower tax rate than a firefighter. Nobody. President Biden speaking to the International Association of Firefighters here in D.C. today. Meanwhile, the budget taxes and the ongoing debt ceiling talks were on the mind of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Many congressional Republicans are threatening to not raise the federal debt limit unless the president agrees to sharp spending cuts. Now, the president has challenged Republicans to release their own spending plan and negotiate over that rather than over whether Congress should raise the debt ceiling and pay its existing bills. Here's more from Speaker McCarthy. Some people would say the debt limit is, is simply just an order of doing business in the House because you've already spent that money. You've already agreed to that budget. I agree. How do we come okay. up and, and figure out to make sure for the next budget go-around we're way smarter about this but not put the the fiscal authority of the United States in question. Right. That's why I said to the president, let's be rational, let's be reasonable, and let's sit down and negotiate. Because should we continue the same behavior going forward? I agree. A debt limit, to make it simplistic, is giving your kid a credit card, they charge it all the way up. You're responsible to pay it, because you did it, but aren't you responsible to not continue the same pattern? This is a moment in time that so many times in the past that we can have fiscal reform on using the debt ceiling, less raise it, but less change our behavior. And I told the president this when I met with him. I said, I'm not going to raise taxes. We've got more revenue coming in at any time. And we're not going to spend as much money as we spent last year because they've increased it 30 percent in the process. So everything's on the table. Let's sit down and discuss. Uh, two months ago, people started freaking out in January. Remember, we were talking about it at the time. People were freaking out about the debt limit. I said, it's not going to really hit until June or August or June or July. Now it's March, and I just wonder how those negotiations are going. Should well, we feel part, any better the, about the, this? No, because the president wasted a month after the discussion with him. He's a, he's a month behind on his budget. Uh, I mean, this is why I'm trying to push this. This what I think positive about it is Republicans and Democrats are sitting down this week together with no cameras and can talk about ideas. You look on the Senate side. Schumer doesn't want to do anything. He thinks he should just pass a clean debt ceiling. That won't pass the Senate. Manchin said he won't vote for that. That won't pass the House. So why don't we sit down and find ways that we can do this? We can eliminate a lot of waste, but we can also do things legislatively. We can secure the border. We could do something on energy. How did we lift the oil export ban? Was in a divided government when Obama was in and we were in the majority. Could we do something on work requirements? There's a lot of places that can make the economy grow at the same time. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on CNBC's Squawk Box earlier today. The House is back to work tomorrow. Virginia Democratic Congresswoman-elect Jennifer McClellan will be sworn in. She was recently elected to replace the late Donald McEachin. She'll become the first black woman to represent Virginia in Congress and will fill the last vacant House, house seat. Now, later in the week, members will take up legislation to prohibit federal officials from pressuring social media companies to censor speech. 
Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell will testify at two hearings on the monetary policy report this week. The first is Tuesday before the Senate Banking Committee. His appearance comes after the Fed approved a quarter-point interest rate hike. That's the smallest increase in several months. And the weeks following that meeting saw strong economic data, including big job gains and strong consumer spending. Still, some economists are worried about a recession. Here's former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. Historically, we don't tend to be able to engineer soft landings from significant uh, inflation. And so my guess is that at some point the Fed will push and push. We will not get inflation accelerate and skyrocket out of control. But my guess is that the process of bringing down inflation will bring on a recession at uh, some stage, as it almost always has in the past. Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers speaking on CNN. Also on Wednesday, the heads of U.S. intelligence agencies will testify on threats facing the U.S. before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Then on Thursday, senators from Ohio and Pennsylvania, federal and local EPA agencies, and the CEO of Norfolk Southern Railroad will testify before the Senate and Environment, uh, Environment and Public Works Committee on how to protect the public and the environment after the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. We'll have live coverage of all of these hearings on the C-SPAN network, cspan.org, and on the C-SPAN Now video app this week. Today in the Senate, senators are continuing work on more of President Biden's judicial nominations for U.S. district courts. Also today, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer filed cloture on Daniel Werfel's nomination to be IRS commissioner. That sets up a floor vote later this week. But U.S. Middle East policy was on the mind of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Here's part of his leader time remarks. If America disengages from the Middle East, some of our partners will, of course, turn to other major powers. A world in which China and Russia exert more influence in this pivotal region is not good for America. Yet too often, this administration has turned to the Obama-era playbook of flirting with our adversaries rather than siding with our friends. President Biden began his administration trying to dismantle the successful maximum pressure campaign on Iran that he inherited. Less than two weeks into the job, he made Iran today by removing the official terrorist designation of the Iran-backed Houthis in Yemen. Iran is the world's most active state sponsor of terror. It was continuing its shameless years-long targeting of America's partners and our own U.S. personnel in the region. But right from the jump, President Biden took pressure off Tehran. Then the Biden administration tried desperately to resemble the wreckage of the failed Obama-era Iran deal, which was, of course, all carrots and no sticks. And the president ignored the concerns of both our commanders and partners in ordering the disastrous retreat from Afghanistan. At crucial moments, President Biden has made decisions that have undermined confidence in America. For example, when an Iran-sponsored attack struck the capital of the UAE, it didn't occur to the Biden administration to send anybody to stand in solidarity with our friends. Our friends didn't expect an American military response, but they certainly deserved at least a phone call. 
Our friends from Saudi Arabia to Qatar to the UAE have made major investments in their military facilities to facilitate America's military presence and access, which contributes to deterrence of common adversaries. The botched retreat from Afghanistan has made these basing agreements even more vital if we wish to maintain any remotely effective way to conduct counterterrorism in the region. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell part of his leader time remarks, and that prompted a response from Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin. I have a few statements I'd like to make this morning, but I would like to respond to the Republican leader's statement that he just completed. I'm not naive when it comes to Iran. I know what's happening there from press reports. Their treatment of women is abominable. There's no excuse for it. And the protests in the streets of Tehran and all across that country really are an expression of human dignity, which the United States support, at least I as a senator in the United States, supports publicly. Secondly, there are no excuses for the assistance Iran is giving to Vladimir Putin in his ruthless attack on the people of Ukraine. I won't make excuses for that or any other terrorist conduct by Iran. But for the record, for the record, it was President Obama who moved forward with the notion that we ought to stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons. They're guilty of bad conduct in many quarters, but we didn't want them to have a nuclear weapon. We didn't think it made America any safer, the Middle East safer, or our allies like Israel any safer either. And so President Obama pushed for uh, arms control when it came to the development of nuclear weapons in Iran and put together a coalition which sounds amazing today. To think that he could gather at one table in this effort Russia, China, Great Britain, France, the European Union, and the United States in this effort to stop the Iranians from developing a nuclear weapon was nothing short of a political miracle. Resisted every step of the way by the Republicans. They didn't want to have this. We did it anyway. And with this nuclear uh, effort was an inspection team, international inspection team, on the ground in Iran to make sure they didn't violate it. We were safer, not by much, but we were safer then. And who came along but President Donald Trump and said his approach would be just the opposite. We were going to eliminate the whole program to stop Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. And he did. And so for the Republicans to come before us today and argue that we're not being tough enough on Iran, I'd like to tell them I'm not going to make excuses for Iran and its foreign policy. But their nuclear weapons, we had a chance to do something about, and some of us voted for it, some of us voted against it. And I think that ought to be a matter of public record. Senate Minority uh, Majority Whip Dick Durbin earlier today on the floor. With more on the debt ceiling, the president's budget request, and that House bill targeting social media companies, here's Bloomberg government congressional reporter Emily Wilkins. So don't expect any Republican budget this week. Republicans definitely want to see what Biden's putting out, what the administration is suggesting as far as cuts, as far as spending. But you did hear budget chairman Jody Arrington say that they are working on a Republican proposal. They're expected to have it in the next 30 days. So kind of look for that around mid-April. And of course, look for Republicans to see where they might be critical about the White House and where they might be on board with it. Biden has promised that his budget will cut 
$2 trillion from the federal deficit over the next 10 years. Now, a good portion of that is going to be with tax increases. The idea you bring in more revenue, you lower the debt. We're going to see some of the tax proposals he had back with Build Back Better, so that increased tax on the wealthy, increased tax on the corporations. And so it'll be interesting to see if those proposals are met with any warmer reception this time. But I think Republicans are going to mostly be looking at what the White House is okay with cutting rather than what they want to raise. Remind viewers what Republicans are looking at. I mean, even though they've not really specifics, what generally is their approach when it comes to the budget that we'll see? That's actually a great question because we don't have a lot of clarity from Republicans at this point about exactly what they want. We know that they're looking at spending caps, that that's on the table. They've talked about bringing the budget spending back to fiscal 22 levels, so that's on the table. Uh, we did see Republicans release a list of woke priorities that they want to see eliminated. These are things like LGBTQ pride centers. Uh, there's a trail in Georgia called the Michelle Obama walking trail, things that were in the last budget that they see as potential cuts. Of course, the key there is that, you know, these are only just a couple million dollars where they're going to need to find much, much more. And of course, they've taken a lot of entitlement programs off the table. They vowed to not cut Social Security. They vowed to not cut Medicare. Both sides seem to be pretty firm on that right now. And of course, those are the big parts of the budget. So it'll be very interesting to see exactly if Republicans kind of wind up coming out with a specific list of things they'd like to cut or if they just wind up putting spending caps across the board and that's how it gets. We are several weeks now with uh, Republicans gaining control of the House. We've seen hearings on China. We've seen legislation being debated on various issues. What would you say now is the theme as we see emerging going forward is what Republicans want to do with this power that they now have? I mean, it's interesting. Republicans have taken on a lot, but they are really going forward with so much. You've seen them focus on the border. You saw McCarthy head there. You've seen a number of congressional hearings there. You're also going to be seeing uh, different things on the Biden family. We've got a hearing about the Biden family and the U.S. Treasury coming up later this week. We also have that hearing with the House Weaponization Committee on the Twitter files, and that's been something that we've seen oversight look into, talk about whether there was any coordination between the government and Twitter. Twitter officials when they decided to sort of temporarily hold back on letting that New York Post article about Hunter Biden's laptop out. Now, you did hear Twitter officials come and say, look, there was no coordination with the government. We made a mistake. You know, it was our we looked at it because of X, Y and Z reasons. But you are now looking this week with the Twitter files, some of those internal documents that were put out uh, by a select group of reporters. There, have of course, been some concerns about the narrative they tell and how accurate that is to what's actually going on. Um, but it kind of continues Republicans trying to see is the government trying to block at all free speech, particularly free speech from conservatives? And we'll see that both with the hearing this week, as well as a bill that's coming to the House floor that addresses that. That hearing that you just mentioned, who's expected to testify at that? Well, we're going to have uh, Matt Talibi, who's one of the main journalists who's actually been releasing some of the Twitter files. Um, we've got another journalist as well who's done the same. And it should be very interesting. I mean, this is the committee that was specifically formed this year, the House Weaponization Committee, to look into whether government has been weaponized. Uh, you've got Jim Jordan, who's been leading it. Of course, you have Democrats who are saying that some of the narratives put out here are false. But it is one of sort of the big blockbuster committees and the blockbuster hearings that Republicans 
Republicans expect to have a lot of attention. And a lot of this is set to really undermine the Biden administration, particularly if he runs again in 2024, if he is the nominee in 2024. If Republicans raise enough doubts in the minds of voters, this could wind up potentially having some sort of impact on Biden's ability to be president again if he decides to run. Then, then go back to that previous hearing you talked about. We've seen hearings looking at Biden, Mr. Biden himself, but now the family gets extended into a look into by Congress. Why is that? A lot of it is just concerns that looking at Hunter Biden, looking at some of the connections that he's had with foreign companies, trying to really dig into that point. And I think to a certain extent, you're seeing a lot of these different hearings about Biden, about his family, about the financial ties, but also about his wider administration. Concerns that his homeland secretary isn't really taking care of the southern border. Concerns that they're trying to limit free speech in a way. Concerns about COVID-19. We'll see the first uh, select committee on COVID-19 hold their hearing this week. And they're going to be looking into the origins of COVID, which is something where you had a lot of conservatives really pushing this theory uh, that it leaked from a lab in Wuhan. And then last week, you saw the Energy Department actually go ahead and say, you know what, we think that there's enough evidence on the table that we're, but we think that that's a very credible explanation. Now, of course, Federal agencies are divided on this. There's no really set agreement as to where COVID-19 started, but it'll be very interesting with this hearing to see if they, how they kind of make their arguments, what information they're looking for. Are they more interested in preventing something like this from happening again, or are they more interested in kind of holding the Biden administration's feet to the fire in the information they've put out and how they've approached COVID? We all know the story of how Kevin McCarthy became Speaker of the House that long week, but but now, how do Republicans view Kevin McCarthy now? At this point, I think Republicans realize that they don't really have another option besides Kevin McCarthy. He won the speakership. He was able to keep everyone together. And so far, things in the House Republicans have run relatively smooth. There have been a couple bills they tried to get over to finish line, had some issues, went back to committee. But so far, no one's really griping. And McCarthy is taking the strategy of really bringing as many people to the table as he possibly can. You've got five ideological caucuses within the Republican uh, House Republican group. And McCarthy has given each of them a seat with his elected leadership council. And that's really something where he's brought back this council. He's made sure that he's got these different groups there. And the idea is for them to kind of troubleshoot problems early. So things like the debt limit. It's obviously several months down the road, but they're starting conversations now, figuring out what groups are cool with, what they're not cool with, really trying to get a sense of the members. It'll be interesting to see if this strategy plays off. You know, we talk a lot in D.C. about the sticks and the carrots. McCarthy clearly likes the carrots, and it'll be interesting to see if he's able to get things like the debt limit, as well as other major spending bills done using that method. You describe these five groups as the five families of sorts within to, to keep the peace. Why Talk about that framing. It's a really interesting nickname. Some people find it very funny. Uh, Scott Perry, the chair of the Freedom Caucus, was like, he's like, I'm not a fan. He's like, did you see the movies? Um, but I think it's just kind of a nickname that a, acknowledges that there are five of them and acknowledges that there are tensions between the group. As as we saw with the speakership. It's not like everyone holds their hands and kumbayas, but at the same point, they all actually have a bigger mission, which is to make sure that Republicans keep the majority, to make sure that Republicans are able to win the Senate and the presidency. And so even though there might be some tensions between the group, they all share an ultimately bigger goal of promoting themselves and making sure that they come out on top after 2024. Bloomberg government congressional reporter Emily Wilkins on today's Washington Journal. You can see more at cspan.org forward slash Washington Journal and on the C-SPAN Now video app. You're listening to Washington Today. 
Welcome back to Washington Today. D.C. Council Chairman Phil Mendelson said today that he sent a letter to the Senate to withdraw changes to the city's crime law. The move comes ahead of reports that President Biden will sign a Republican-backed resolution that would block the changes. During a press conference on Monday, Councilman Mendelson said his withdrawal means that the crime bill is, quote, no longer properly before Congress. We'll hear response on this from White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre coming up. More than 190 countries have agreed to a U.N. treaty that aims to protect marine biodiversity by establishing protected areas in international waters. The first of its kind legally binding treaty was finalized on Saturday night by diplomats after nearly 20 years of negotiations. Just 1.2 percent of the world's oceans are currently protected from threats such as pollution, overfishing, shipping and deep sea mining. The treaty also advances a way to tackle another pressing issue, how to divide up the profits from deep-sea scientific discoveries. Once it takes legal effect, nations can begin proposing the establishment of new marine protection areas. U.S. National Parks and Memorials saw an increase in visitors last year. The National Park Service said there were about 320 million visitors in 2022. That's a 5% increase from 2021, but a more than 4.5% decrease over pre-pandemic levels. The top five most visited Park Service sites Virginia's Blue Ridge Parkway, California's Golden Gate National Recreation Area, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Gateway National Recreation Area in New York and New Jersey, and the Lincoln Memorial here in D.C. As we mentioned earlier, the Senate and Environment Public Works Committee is scheduled to hold a hearing on how to protect the public and the environment following that train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Federal and local EPA agencies are expected to testify So is the CEO of Norfolk Southern Railroad, which saw another one of its trains come off its tracks on Saturday near Springfield, Ohio. That's west of Columbus. Today, the National Transportation Safety Board Chair Jennifer Homedy talked about both incidents and the overall safety of the U.S. rail system. She began giving us the latest on what happened on Saturday night. We have investigators that arrived on scene this morning, so they are still collecting information. Here's what I will tell you. This was a pretty long train, uh, 212 rail cars, uh, some of which were tank cars transporting hazardous material. There were 28 uh, cars of hazardous material. Uh, As you noted, uh, none of those uh, leaked. There was a leak of non-hazardous material called uh, polythene, about uh, four dump truck loads, uh, essentially, of material that is being cleaned up. Uh, Certainly, that's still a a skin irritant, so workers have to be careful around that area. Uh, But this was a pretty long train. For those uh, who who may not be aware, 212 rail cars plus uh, uh, locomotives and uh, two distributed power units Uh, We're looking at 2.5 mile long train. That is a long train. And so uh, we'll be looking at that uh, as well as the cause. That's interesting about how long it is. Uh, Does that tend to lead to greater risks when we have longer trains? Yeah, there's there's certainly a debate on uh, whether longer trains would reduce the number of trains or uh, whether that would just make it more difficult uh, to handle in-train forces, especially during a derailment. 
Uh, and it could make it certainly more difficult for crew who have to uh, get out and possibly inspect a rail car that has some sort of deficiency uh, and has to walk uh, one or two miles back uh, in a train. So, uh, and, and not even to mention uh, the impact on grade crossings because of the closure of grade crossings for a significant amount of time. But that's something we'll look at as part of this investigation, as well as uh, everything else. Uh, we we don't rule anything out in an investigation, so we'll look pretty broadly. We expect attendance from both the Ohio and Pennsylvania delegation to appear at Thursday's hearing. Here's more from Chair Hamidi. As you pointed out, uh, as a nation, we want to see some action here. We want to see improvements. I, I think everybody agrees on that. Um, you can see a lot of action right in Washington, D.C., where I'm sitting. Uh, there's obviously now a bipartisan bill that's been introduced in the Senate, this Railway Safety Act of 2023. It will do a number of things. Obviously, it's in the early stages of a draft, but it will raise the fines in for trains that have derailed for reasons that could have been preventable. But it will also start to try to put some ground rules, it seems like, around carrying hazardous materials and around these detectors, these bearing detectors we've spent a lot of time talking about. Uh, ha have you read this bill? Have you been involved? Do you support it? Well, uh, I've, I've not been involved in the drafting or anything of that uh, legislation. What I will tell you is often Congress asks the NTSB for technical assistance uh, through our Government Affairs Department, who then coordinates with our rail office to provide comments. Um, the Office of Management and Budget also may ask uh, for those type of comments. So they're currently evaluating the legislation. And what they'll do is they'll compare the legislation with recommendations that the NTSB has issued in the past on rail safety. Rail worker safety is on the NTSB's most wanted list of transportation safety improvements. And we have over 250 recommendations that we've issued on rail safety generally that have not been acted upon yet. And so those recommendations could be addressed right away. With that said, um, I firmly believe it should not take an act of Congress to improve rail safety, uh, especially with something so tragic as this. Uh, we need some action now, which is why we have that system I mentioned as part of our investigative process. Uh, but also, I do want to mention a lot of, and I, I appreciate this because I worked on Capitol Hill for nearly 15 years. I appreciate the need to move quickly on, on legislation. The one thing I want to make sure is that at, at the conclusion of our process, that our recommendations are not ignored. That cannot happen. It cannot be, okay, we moved legislation, so we're past it, and now we're going to uh, ignore the safety recommendations of the NTSB that would prevent this from reoccurring and save lives in the future. No, we need that action on our safety recommendations. So I expect that when those recommendations are, are issued, but also this community deserves that. 
National Transportation Safety Board Chair Jennifer Homedy speaking with The Washington Post's Heather Long. You can see that entire event at cspan.org. An update today on Environment Committee member and Pennsylvania Democrat John Fetterman. He is currently being treated for clinical depression. His chief of staff, Adam Gentleson, tweeted out pictures of Senator Fetterman doing work, saying, quote, productive morning with Senator Fetterman at Walter Reed discussing the rail safety legislation, farm bill and other Senate business. John is well on his way to recovery and wanted me to say how grateful he is for all the well wishes. He's laser focused on PA and will be back soon. That's a tweet from John Fetterman, chief of staff, Adam Gentleson. And finally, more from the White House on D.C. Council Chairman Phil Mendelson's letter to the Senate that asks to withdraw the changes to the city's crime law. At today's White House press briefing, Kareem Jean-Pierre was asked if the president still planned to veto the measure if it comes to his desk. Senate uh, intends to move forward with its vote on the resolution to disapproval. The president still intends to sign it. Is that right? If uh, look again, we've made ourselves very clear. If the if the if the bill uh, comes to the president's desk, he will sign it. One other question on this. I don't think you've been asked this this directly before, but you know, last week uh, you said that the president viewed what the D.C. Council did as unacceptable. You specifically talked about how the bill would reduce penalties for armed carjacking, and, and you even mentioned sexual assault. So the question for is, is why the president would still support D.C. statehood if the council is, is going to pass bills that the president finds unacceptable, why would the president empower the council to have the power of a state legislature that he couldn't check? Because he believes, and he has for some time now, that D.C. should be uh, a 51 state. Uh, they, they should have a statehood. Again, the reason why the president, we've been, uh, we responded to this and answered the question of if he was going to sign it or not is because it was coming to his desk, as we know from last week. And so the, the president communicated that, we communicated that, uh, but it doesn't change, doesn't change that he encourages Congress to put, uh, to pass a bill that makes D.C. a state and he will sign it. He believes that, uh, that uh, cities and, and, uh, and states should be able to govern for themselves. Last one on this. Um, you know, advocates of D.C. statehood say that what has happened here in this episode is that the effort has been set back significantly. Uh, that essentially what the president has done is, is uh, he's given juice to opponents of statehood, and statehood opponents say that uh, this episode has proven them right, that the D.C. government should not be self-governing without Congress's involvement. Well, we don't. Dis- we, we disagree, right? We believe D.C. should be a statehood. I mean, we've been very clear. The president has been very clear. Again, D.C. is not a state. It's not a city. Uh, the reason why this bill was coming before, before the president is because that is the case, right? It's not a state. It's not a city. So doesn't mean that it stops our support for uh, their statehood. It uh, doesn't mean that the president has changed his mind on that. We still support that and want to see that happen. And we we're going to uh, we're going to continue to encourage Congress to move in that way. Late this afternoon, D.C. Council Chairman Phil Mendelson said that he was unsure if his attempt to withdraw the measure would succeed. A reminder, you can also get Washington Today as a podcast at cspan.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like more on the stories that are shaping Washington, you can subscribe to C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word. Just go to cspan.org forward slash connect to subscribe. I'm Gary Stairkoff. Thanks a lot for listening today to Washington Today.